We are starting the show, though, talking more about ambulance paramedics in this province and another example of a wait time for an ambulance, albeit in a smaller, more rural community, but a wait time that many people say simply is not acceptable. We are a small community. We're an hour from Kamloops. People know that if something goes wrong, if if they have a heart attack, if they have a serious medical issue, they will be taken to Royal Inland, uh, preferably by ambulance, so that you can get that medical attention you need en route. And these two instances coming within a month of each other, where the ambulance was called for someone in severe medical distress and taking half an hour to arrive, has, has really got a lot of people on edge and wondering what on earth is happening? That was Barbara Roden, the mayor of Ashcroft, and she was speaking earlier today on Mornings with Simi. We wanted to talk more about this specific case of a cardiac incident, as well as what's happening with the paramedic service throughout BC. And joining us to do that is Troy Clifford, Ambulance Paramedics Union president, also an active paramedic. Troy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill, for having me on. Well, certainly a sad story out of Ashcroft and one we've been talking about in the news. Uh, I know the paramedic service is looking into this to see exactly what happened, but what is your take on what happened in uh, the death of this person who had a cardiac incident and waited, I think it was about 30 minutes for an ambulance? Yeah, that's exactly what's been reported to me. This is a tragic situation, and and sadly it's... uh, uh, evident to how uh, you know the crisis has really got on hand. Unfortunately, Ashcroft's have been hit pretty hard with uh, you know with with the couple incidents that really uh, should not have been, and, and it's uh, not given the best outcomes for those patients. You know, we know that uh, uh, the evidence says that you know in a cardiac arrest, within three minutes you need to initiate CPR and uh, defibrillator for the best possible outcomes uh, and survival, and and that didn't happen in this situation. Um, and that's where I think ultimately we, we, you know, what we've been highlighting for a while, Jill, just is not acceptable. And this is a tragic situation. But 30 minutes is what's been reported to me. It came from Clinton, the next closest ambulance that was available. Uh, you know, we didn't have the second ambulance staffed in Ashcroft that day because of our longstanding issue of uh, staffing and that precarious on-call model. So we just don't have the staff. I don't know what the status of the primary ambulance was, whether they're on a call or just out of service. But either way, there was no coverage for that community. Um, and a tragic event came in, which is uh, all too often happening around, around the province. Uh, the mayor was speaking earlier today uh, on Mornings with Simi, and she talked about this this incident, the death of this individual. But also, in, in general, she talked about how in the past she's called an ambulance and, and it's taken more than an hour, potentially because maybe one of the ambulances has gone to Clinton or maybe one is servicing 100 Mile House. I mean, she even said no, one's, no one expects, especially in a smaller community, a community like Ashcroft, to have 24-7 service within moments. Moments. But you, you mentioned that with a cardiac arrest, especially how important those first few minutes are. Is there a way to kind of bridge that gap of treatment? Yeah, absolutely. And we rely more on the emergencies. So what I would clarify for that is that Ashcroft, one of the things that was done after last summer, Ashcroft was put, uh, was, was amended to be a full-time ambulance station, 24-7 primary ambulance response. So we have that staffing there. 
That's what the minister put in place. Unfortunately, uh, we haven't been able to backfill and recruit part-time and on-call to fill those positions. So we need secondary uh, resources that staffed, and the primary ambulance needs to be staffed. So uh, I think people do expect to have an ambulance in their time of need um, wherever they are in the province, especially in their prime. But I do agree with her that, you know, when you live in a rural community, there's not the same expectation for less urgent calls and that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, when the emergency department's closed and we have to transfer patients to 100 Mile or, or Kamloops, that leaves a large gap when we don't have a second ambulance available. And, you know, the problem is it's not just Ashcroft. The communities around them are strapped for staffing and out of service. So it's not like we can pull in easily from other communities. So we really need to address that on-call model um, and move to a more full-time, professional, committed, dedicated ambulance service that's paid properly really that's the real biggest issue here and we've been talking about this but we keep seeing these incidents and sadly this weekend was one of the worst scenarios i've heard and how it's been reported over the weekend uh, across the province vancouver island the north the kootenays uh the south okanagan it's just it's incredible how many ambulances were out of staff out of service and uh sadly uh there there in all likelihood there's way more situations like we're we're talking about right now and so when you talk about that, the on-call payment schedule, and we've discussed that in the past, can you remind us again, so how does that work and why is it an issue having the on-call fees for paramedics? So right now, I mean, every profession and, and industry is looking in. Uh, we're in a human resources staffing challenge in BC in every industry, right, and profession. Um, it's no different for us. But uh, what happened is that old precarious model really has not been sustainable where you rely on essentially volunteers for $2 an hour or to staff those ambulances, the secondary ambulance, or backfill the full-time. So we're about 50% full-time and 50% part-time in the province. Um, But we just don't have those part-time bodies anymore to fill. So that just left the gaps. But they will come back and they will take full-time jobs in communities uh, if they're paid and, and have benefits uh, that they just have so many choices now they're choosing other careers they're working in private industry and that's why we can't recruit or retain um, and that needs to be addressed so that we can sustain and build uh, approximately we're advised from bchs we have approximately a thousand vacancies in the province right now that's full and part-time um, that's incredible and that just can't be sustained and that, you know considering we have about 4,500 members total that's uh, over a, a quarter of our workforce is, is we, we're short. Um, and then you talk about about 30% of our members you are off on mental health or critical incident uh, uh, in treatment for critical incident stress. So, you know, our vacancies are incredible right now. And we just don't have the, the vacancy or the staff to fill the positions. And that's what's ultimately affecting not only Ashcroft, but all these communities. And is the argument then, if it was to switch to all the positions being full-time positions, there would be scenarios when even though there is an ambulance station, say in a smaller community, there could be a scenario where paramedics aren't being called out and aren't responding to calls for a period of time? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, but that's the premise of it. You know, you, you, you don't staff for the peaks or the lows. You staff for the norms. And, you know, not every community, you know, warrants uh you know multiple first full-time ambulances but uh you know you're going to get really remote communities that are going to have to have a secondary model but we need to move from a more reliance on that on-call model to a more full-time uh properly compensated model that's what uh we know that works and we know that that staff and that's expectations in other professions we don't do it in police and fire in that way 
Um, we don't do it in health disciplines. Um, you know, so why is it acceptable, you know, in, when people time of need an emergency ambulance um, that not? Because without the ambulance service, uh, we're relying on it more and more in the community. But there's a frontline first access to emergency medical care. Um, and in many of these communities, we are the only uh, health care. Um, and without that foundation, the whole system doesn't work. And when we look at this, and, and you mentioned some of the other smaller communities as well, do you think residents, though, even though, and like the mayor said, nobody expects an ambulance to be parked at the end of their driveway 24-7, yeah. but in a scenario like Ashcroft, where there is an ambulance station, and this cardiac incident took place very close to the ambulance station, do you think, do residents almost have a false sense of security right now, thinking that because there's an ambulance station, there will be an ambulance there? Yeah, I think you're right. It's 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 not uh, it's not inspiring confidence in the ambulance service, and that's what really bothers me. And that's the moral injuries for paramedics and dispatchers because it does warrant an ambulance station with two ambulances there, and uh, you know, and people expect that. Um, and if they're not going to be able to provide that service, there need to be some public service announcements. We need to know the emergency, you know, contingency risk management, uh, the community needs cross cover so people can make informed decisions in that situation. There are going to be times where it's just, you know, multiple calls come in t- at the same time and, you know, you just will be delayed. But that, that those are the spikes of, of anomalies. They're not the uh, thing. But people do expect... When you have a dedicated ambulance in your community, a full-time ambulance, they expect it to be available where, when possible. Um, and I think that's not an unreasonable expectation. But until that gets fixed or changes are made, is it safe to say then, if you do live in a smaller community, you, you're taking that risk or you, you should know there are risks in that if you need an ambulance, it's not guaranteed it's going to get there in moments. It could be more than half an hour. Yeah, you know, your distances in rural communities are the same. But right now, what you're describing that uh, is happening in in Surrey, in the lower mainland, it's happening all over the province because of our shortages. Uh, you know, it's not just, you know, when you're talking, when you live in a rural community or out in a, in, in, in a, in a rural thing that from away from a community, you don't expect to have that ambulance there like the mayor was talking about. But uh, I think there is an expectation regardless of where you are in the province. You should have a timely ambulance in particularly when you're having those highest acute calls, those emergencies, the heart attacks, the shortening of the breath, the cardiac arrest. Um, and uh, that's not happening right across the board from, uh, you know, high metro areas right through to really remote communities. Right. Uh, so I think there is, and I, I'm, you know, it, it hurts me to say that, uh, you know, this is hurting the public confidence in the ambulance service. And, um, you know, we have to have these tough conversations, but it's really tough to say this, uh, no, and it's certainly uh, tough for people that have found themselves in those uh, scenarios as well. Troy, we'll leave it there for today. As always, appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for to- uh, joining us to talk about this. Thank you, Jill. Have a great afternoon. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, Harold Johnson, a well-known security guard, he has been keeping watch in Chinatown for many, many years. And he was attacked on August 12th. This as he was making his regular morning rounds in Chinatown. Uh, Just before the news break, I played for you just a couple of his comments when he talked about the injuries that he endured. Uh, He spoke with Global News earlier today uh, talking about what happened. They started to go for me in the BAA, in VCMA, started to go for me. And when I looked at it, I was amazed. I was just overwhelmed, the support I got. 
I came down here yesterday and I thank all my merchants for the love, the care, what they gave for me. That was Howard Johnson responding to the GoFundMe page and the outpouring of support from merchants and others in the area. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. And joining us to do that is Lorraine Lowe, Executive Director at the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden. Lorraine, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hi again, Jill. Thanks for having me. I, I say this every time, I think, that I wish we were talking about something more positive or uh, on a, a much lighter lighter note. But this was just a, a horrible attack on a, a well-loved security guard in Chinatown. Uh, how is the community responding now to this? Well, you know, this particular incident, it really sent shockwaves throughout our community. And, you know, Harold, he's like a, a member of our family. And you know, attack on Harold is an attack on our community. And, you know, the outpouring of support has been so tremendous. And, you know, it's really touched him, as you can see from and hear from his voice. Uh, but, yeah, we've really come together on this. And, you know, we're just so thankful. And it's not just Chinatown. It's people that are around the area, like people from Strathcona and Crosstown have been reaching out. And, you know, everybody knows Harold down here. He's just so well-loved. And I was looking at the numbers. So almost $10,000 raised at this point, which is so great. But Lorraine, what does this also tell us? I mean, wonderful that the community is responding this way. Not a huge surprise, really, that the community is responding in such a positive way. But there's also a lot of anger. Uh, Harold's wife spoke out earlier today, too, saying she's angry watching this and seeing what's happening in that community. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the tensions that are, are happening in the downtown east side, it's spilling over. And, you know, there's this, this very tense um, environment that it's down here. And, you know, it's spilled over. And I think people are just getting in the, hit in the crossfire. Like, there's an 89-year-old woman that was, was assaulted the other morning. And then, you know, that was like the day after Harold was assaulted. So, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of tension in the air. And, you know, I'm hoping to to work together uh, with the other community leaders and, and helping to, you know, uh, improve the situation. Like, we may not agree with the same ideas, but we do need to work together, keep an open mind, and, and look at other ways of, of addressing this. So how do you address it? Because this question has been asked a few times, and when you've come on the program in the past, where we've often talked about property damage, about graffiti and things that are happening in Chinatown, garbage that is left behind, and, and not to suggest that any of that is okay, but it is different than a physical assault uh, out of the blue, an unprovoked attack on a security guard or anybody for that matter. Uh, so how do we even begin to address that? Uh, well, I mean, you know, it's, Literally, like, this is a social experiment that has gone wrong. There are serious safety concerns here. There's a humanitarian crisis going on. And, you know, our approach has not helped. It's now a runaway train. Like, we've lost control. I think we really need to look at ways of uh, looking at it as an empowering instead of enabling and restoring accountability. And, you know, just this idea of respecting boundaries, um, you know, restoring law and order and just the whole idea of empowering and engaging and building the trust between communities. You know, get to know your neighbors. And, you know, Harold, he was really good at that. He would always get to know the people that were on the street. You know, it's really changed lately. I got to say, like, the the folks that that are coming around here, like, I I don't know them. There's no uh, relationship right now. So, you know, I think there's uh, so many things that we can do, but we do need to look at other ways and 
you know, one idea was decentralizing the services around the Lower Mainland. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 at the end of the day, we do need more foot patrol and policing in Chinatown right now due to the situation that's happening in the downtown east side. And we talked about this as well during the pandemic when Chinatown, like many other communities, became a bit of a ghost town. There simply weren't people on the streets, eyes on the streets. Is that improving? Yes, it has. uh, With, you know, tourism back, uh, we're looking at about a 60 to 70 percent return in the last couple of months. Uh, It has improved. But, you know, when you're walking on a Monday morning, Monday morning and Tuesdays are really quiet down here. So, uh, you know, when you're looking at that, like there aren't enough people on the streets and eyes. So, you know, there is this void on certain days that are a little bit quieter. But, no, I do see an increase in the tourism and it truly has helped. And you mentioned as well more foot patrols or police patrols. We've heard that from the West End in Vancouver as well. Eyes on the street, uh, official eyes on the street also. Uh, Is there a police presence or when you say more is needed, what would you like to see? Well, you know, I'd like to point out with the 89-year-old who was assaulted the other morning, like, thank goodness that there was police just right around the corner. They were able to quickly attend to the situation and make an immediate arrest. So, you know, circumstances like that, having that foot patrol around, having, you know, the, the police presence does help. And I'm just saying this from my personal experience, being here every single day, being in Chinatown, that um, I would really appreciate it if I would be able to get more of a, a presence, and which I have been seeing in the last few days and am very grateful for. All right. Lorraine, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us, as always. Thanks, Jill. We are hearing today from Iran making the first public remarks about the attack on author Salman Rushdie. Iran denying any involvement in the New York stabbing assault on author Salman Rushdie, that despite the regime's decades-old fatwa or decree demanding his killing for alleged blasphemy. The spokesman for Iran's foreign ministry instead blaming Rushdie himself, saying he exposed himself to popular fury by, quote, insulting the sacredness of Islam. Iran officially justifying the violent attack, implying its support, that after state media has gloated about it for days, what Secretary of Defense Antony Blinken called, quote, despicable. Jordana Miller, ABC News, Jerusalem. Joining us now to talk more about this assault is Gal Beckerman, senior editor at The Atlantic and also the author of a new article about this and Salman Rushdie. Gal, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, It was something I think, and you touch on this in the article, it was horrific, horrifying to watch, but sadly, didn't come as a huge surprise to people. What was your response when you saw this and heard about this attack on uh, Salman Rushdie? Well, as we know, uh, Rushdie has had a price on his head now for nearly 33 years. I think most of us who have been aware of this situation and regarding the the fatwa that had been placed on him, uh, you know, thought that he was sort of in the clear. So at one level, you know, it was sort of shocking. Uh, but then, you know, it's not so surprising that violence should be committed on him just because this is something that had been in the air already. Um, it, it was uh, a very, it was a very sad thing to, to 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 hear happen, just because you know, any time that a writer, uh, somebody who uses their words, who uh, who writes books, 
um, that is attacked and, and, and their blood is spilled, um, I think we should all worry as a society. And you're right, and you make an interesting point in going back, and, and I remember back when the, the fatwa was issued for the author, and, and certainly at this point, not that people thought that it had gone away or there wasn't as much danger, but it did seem like he lived a bit more of a more relaxed life now, say, as compared to 30, 35 years ago. Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, he's been living in New York City for about the last 20 years. I'd seen him a number of times. People saw him out and about. And uh, and it, it seemed to be that, 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 that he was safe. But, you know, even though Iran at some point had sort of technically said that the fatwa was off, uh, there had been indications that, you know, this was out there and there was a, even a price tag attached to killing him and that, you know, somebody could theoretically take it up. Right. Uh, this is also, I mean, so this all goes back to his writing of the novel, The Satanic Verses. Do you, what, is it today, do you think, does it make people as angry today as it did when he first published, put this book out there? Uh, I think it could. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was, he was having a, he was writing about Islam in a way that was not necessarily reverential of the religion. He was writing about Muhammad in ways that he wanted to, um, that wasn't taking into account what, you know, Muslims think, you know, one should or shouldn't say about the prophet. So um, I don't have any doubt that if he did it today, uh, that he would get into trouble as well. I mean, look at some of uh, the things that have happened in more recent times, like the cartoons of Mohammed in in, uh, in in Europe that, that you know, got death threats and, and uh, or the, I don't know what happened in uh, the Charlie Hebdo, the French magazine that was, uh, where there was a mass shooting that took the lives of many people uh, that was also around similar issues. So uh, I think it remains a, a difficult topic to write about openly. And we've seen so many authors in Canada and the United States around the world coming out and denouncing this assault, this attack on author Salman Rushdie. What does this say, do you think, about freedom of speech, freedom of expression and the battle for that? I mean, I find it incredibly reassuring to hear so many people get on the same page about it. If you know, if you remember when the fatwa actually happened in the late '80s, it wasn't uh, unambiguous support for him. There were certain people, even in Western literary communities, who said, "Oh, you know, maybe he did go too far. Maybe he did insult people, uh, or you know, his his insulting of of Islam uh, did not, you know, merit necessarily a, a death threat against him. But maybe he had he himself had made a mistake." And I don't hear you saying. I don't hear people saying that now, uh, partly because I think when violence like this is committed, when we see what happens, when we experience, uh, you know, the, the sight of somebody jumping on stage and stabbing him 10 times, you know, that uh, clarifies things for people. And I don't think anybody can really look at that and think that it's something that, that he wrote should should justify that sort of brutality and violence. Do you think there's a concern then? This is obviously a very specific attack. We're still learning more about motive and exactly why this particular person did this. But what does this do for freedom of expression or as far as, and when you mentioned Charlie Hebdo, does that kind of, does it put on ice this desire to to be provocative and to say things that authors, cartoonists know will get a negative reaction? 
I think it does, and I think that's clearly the the purpose of it. You know, it it anytime that you have an act like of violence like this that occurs, it's it's chilling. You know, it it people chilling not just uh, emotionally chilling, but actually kills uh, further expression because you know what writer who's about to write about a topic that they fear people will get offended to the point of committing violence over won't stop and wonder uh, you know twice whether they should commit something like that. You know, it's it it it, it is meant to have that effect, and that's the effect that it has. I, I love the title of your piece in The Atlantic is all because Salman Rushdie wrote a book. And I just think that really does sum it up, doesn't it? That his his crime, and I'm using air quotes, his crime yeah. was he wrote a book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's why when you see violence like this, it's clarifying. I think that, you know, when the fatwa happened, everything kind of was a little bit abstract and theoretical. You know, that there is a death sentence. Uh, you know, nobody really stopped, or not, not nobody, but a lot of people didn't stop to consider the actual terrorized experience of being Rushdie, having to hide for 10 years. It was just sort of an academic conversation of, you know, is this, was it was what he did right? Was it not right? You know, should he, did he go too far? Did he not go too far? But when you see blood, when you see actual violence, uh, then you have to really wonder what side you're on, something like this. All right. Gal Beckerman, thank you so much for making the time for us today and for talking more about this. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. Thank you. Well, we certainly have been enjoying, I think, for the most part, the summer temperatures, the warm days, the sunshine. But with summer also comes mosquitoes. And there's often that question, why are mosquitoes attracted to some people, it seems, much more than others? Well, a new study is shedding a bit of light on that. And the study is co-authored by UBC's Dr. Ben Matthews, a professor in the UBC Department of Zoology, who joins us now to talk more about this. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me on. So you are looking specifically at mosquitoes, the types of mosquitoes we have in Canada, in BC. What did you find as far as what they're attracted to? Well, so we've actually been focused primarily on the yellow fever mosquito, which is uh, called Aedes aegypti. And, and luckily, we don't have too much of it here in, in BC just yet, although there are plenty of reports of it in, in Ontario. Um, that said, we do have over 50 species of mosquitoes in BC, and, and some of them, as we all know, definitely target humans. Um, so what we've been able to learn is that they uh, pick up on odors that come off of our skin, and it's almost certainly odors that are produced not by us, per se, but by the bacteria that are growing on our skin. Uh, and so that's going to be different between people. It's also going to be different between people and animals. And so that's producing the signature blend of, of odorants that mosquitoes really love to uh, hone in on before taking a blood meal. Hmm. So is it kind of luck of the draw, though? You, ha- you have this or you don't, or you're, uh, you're more appealing to mosquitoes or you're not? Or is it something that people do? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And so there are a lot of uh, kind of old wives tales out there about, you know, maybe it's what you eat or maybe it's your blood type. Some people have sweeter blood than others. But it is probably more, as you say, it's probably more a luck of the draw in terms of the types of bacteria that are, are congregating on our skin. So what we do know is that some people are, are more attractive to mosquitoes and they remain that way for a very long time. So it's not just about what you ate for lunch today or, or anything like that, or even whether you've had a shower more recently uh, than somebody else. So if you put a group of us around a campfire, there is going to be that one person who's a mosquito magnet and, and everybody else might get off a little bit easier. Um, so as far as we know, it's nothing that, that you 
have done to attract them. You just happen to be that uh, that lucky individual. <laughs> or, yeah, I, I don't know if lucky is the uh, the way a lot sure. of people would describe it. Uh, so, so is it in my head then when I think that when, if I'm outdoors exercising, I feel like there are more mosquitoes attracted to me than not? Sure. And, and that's probably because of uh, some of the other cues that they're picking up on. So every time we breathe out, we exhale carbon dioxide. And that turns out to be a really potent activator. So it doesn't necessarily attract them to you, but it tells them that there's something in the environment, something alive, and that they should really get up and, and fly around and, and look for it. Um, and then when they get closer, they're absolutely picking up on things like uh, elevated temperature. They like warm bodies as compared to the environment around. And potentially, as you're sweating, you are releasing more uh, of those odorants that we talked about previously. Um, so, yes, absolutely. The more you exercise, the more you are likely attracting uh, the little blood suckers. <laughs> and is there anything, is it something that we should be worried about? Like you said, we don't, we have a lot of different species of mosquitoes here, but as far as I understood, we don't have any that really carry disease or, or that, that we see in other countries. So aside from it can be itchy and annoying when a mosquito bites you, do we, do we need to be concerned about it? Yeah, in, in general, we are luckier than many parts of the world. So we have no malaria. We have no dengue fever, yellow fever, Zika virus. Um, that said, there are some uh, viruses, arboviruses in particular, that can uh, impact humans, including West Nile and uh, some of the equine encephalitis. So well, it's probably not the end of the world to get bitten. It's, it's still something we probably want to get in the habit of, of avoiding, uh, even if it's just, as you say, to avoid the itchiness. Um, and one of the things we're concerned about is that as the climate changes and as the distribution of these mosquitoes changes, which it has in the past, uh, we might be facing some of the uh, more nasty viruses that other parts of the world are dealing with now in the coming decades. Right. So as things get warmer, because it seems like the, the destructive mosquitoes, the ones that carry the diseases you just mentioned, are found mostly, if not completely, in those warmer climates. Yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, But as, as we pointed out, as the winters get warmer, they might make, uh, make over winter homes up here. And then all it takes is a reservoir of the virus and uh, the vector mosquito itself. And then uh, we could be in big trouble. Hmm. Uh, so what's the best way then, other than wearing a, a full suit to keep them away from you and having no exposed skin, what's the best way then to stop from being bitten by them? Yeah, so the best prevention we have, uh, uh, in addition to what you mentioned, which is just not exposing yourself to mosquitoes, are uh, repellents that contain the compound DEET, and that's D-E-E-T, not D-D-T, which is a, a separate insecticide, which is now banned. But DEET, uh, despite smelling a little bad and, and being oily, um, actually does not have any proven long-term health effects, and it is one of the chemicals that is actually proven to repel mosquitoes. So while many of the natural remedies like citronellol and, and things like that uh, may smell better and, and uh, be more attractive uh, to us as consumers, it turns out that, that the real stuff, the deep-containing repellents, are still our best prevention. Interesting that you mentioned that because I've often thought or kind of fallen into that idea of lighting the citronella candles, but I've never actually sure. noticed that they make any difference at all. Yeah, yeah, it's going to make your uh, gathering smell a little bit nicer for, for the people. And maybe the smoke, maybe there might be something about the, the currents that are produced by, by just having a fire. Um, but it turns out that the, the chemicals in those candles are probably not the strongest repellents to, to mosquitoes. And what about standing water in that? And I remember talking about this, talking specifically about West Nile, but I would imagine yeah. having standing water would be kind of a playground for any kind of mosquito. Absolutely. And, and that's because the... Uh, 
kind of infancy of their, their lifespan, the larval and pupil stages, we call them, are actually fully aquatic. So if you go to an overturned tire or a puddle even, uh, and you're in prime mosquito habitat, you will likely see these little wriggling uh, uh, creatures in there. And those are actually the immature stages of the mosquitoes. And they need about a week, sometimes two weeks, uh, of uh, life in that water before they emerge as, as the flying adults that we know. So one of the best things that we can do is actually uh, ensure that there are no bodies of standing water, and they can be as small as a bottle cap. Um, you can have eggs that will hatch in, in volumes of water that are that small. And so if we are just able to remove those, and that means clearing out your gutters, making sure that there are no overturned tires on your property and thing like, things like that, that is going to dramatically reduce the chances that you'll have a large mosquito infestation on your, on your property. Uh, interesting. What about time of day? Do they come out more in, in different times of day? Yeah, so that depends on the species. Uh, there are some that prefer dawn and dusk. Uh, there are some that uh, will actually try and bite you at night. And uh, um, and those are the ones uh, primarily that we worry about in terms of uh, malaria transmission in, in other countries. Um, so it really, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to that, that question. And so you just have to kind of take note of where you are and what mosquitoes are around and, and maybe pay some attention to their patterns uh, as you try and figure out how best to protect yourself. All right. Uh, is there any benefit to, to mosquitoes? Do they serve a purpose that's, that's something that we admire them for? Sure. Uh, they absolutely serve as food for bats and birds and, and other insects as well. So they do likely play a very important uh, role in, in ecosystems in that way. And they also have been shown to be pollinators of, of plants. So similar to a bee, as they go and search for sugar, because not all mosquitoes take blood all the time. Uh, male mosquitoes never take blood. Their, their only source of food is, is nectar and, and other uh, plant sugars. Um, and as they go from flower to flower and plant to plant, they actually are able to pollinate uh, some of those plants as well. So, yes, well, we think of them as, as annoying nuisances. Um, like every other animal I, I can think of, they have their own important role in, in our ecosystem. All right. Well, that is good to know, or it makes it a little bit easier to accept (laughs) why they're around and doing this. Uh, Just just to to circle back to, again, why humans were so attractive and we smell so good to mosquitoes. Again, just to to reiterate that, it's nothing that that people are doing. Like you said, it's not blood type. It's not necessarily diet. We're just very much, we are what they seek out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that's only some species. Uh, others will prefer birds or, or other mammals, um, but they would take a human if, if we happen to stroll by at the wrong time. Um, so, so yeah, the best prevention is uh, not anything to do with your diet or, or things like that. It's to wear the right clothing and to wear the repellents when needed and uh, just to pay attention to what's out there and what's biting. All right. Interesting research. Ben Matthews, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us and talking about mosquitoes. My pleasure, Dylan. Thanks for having me on.